0: All right, this morning, our topic is, comes from this verse in Ecclesiastes, or these two verses. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. There is a time to keep silence, and there is a time to speak. Now, how do you know the difference? You go down the 14-page checklist to find out. Today, I am impressed with the, the wisdom of the staff that put this talk this morning. Today, we're going to use Merle's props here. You know, I don't know what to make of this prop. This morning, I got up early, and I left my bedroom, and that was hanging on my doorknob, which was very nice. However, this carrot has kind (laughs) of seen better days. So I'm not sure if he's saying that I'm kind of wilting, or I'm not sure what to make of this. Anyway, distracting. Today, when we go to Seattle, you're going to find carrots and you're going to find dead branches. What I mean by that is, is you're going to find people who are open and receptive. Even if maybe they look a little rough, there's a crack in their armor somewhere. They're wilting and they need some life. And they are going to be receptive to even just the tiniest of seeds to slip into a crack. You're also potentially going to find some who are completely walled off. Maybe they're antagonistic. Maybe they're angry at you for even what you represent. Maybe they want to engage in conflict. and You're going to have both. There is a point in time where this one we need to walk away from. It can be dangerous. This one we need to plant the seed. Maybe even water that seed a little bit. And maybe today it's possible we could even harvest that seed. We don't know. That's God's business. But young folks, right now, the Holy Spirit and God and Christ know the carrots and the dead branches that we're going to meet in Seattle. They already know that. And they have prepared you and been preparing you for the people you're going to meet. These are not chance encounters. This is... A popular phrase: intersectionality between the children of God and the children of the world. And God has planned this out from the beginning of creation. Today, we want to know how do we go after the carrots, and how do we move away from the dead branches? You can have your carrot back for the next talk, Merle. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad I could be of assistance. So today. Having an eternal perspective, that's having discernment and influence as a youth. How can I have exercise discernment and have influence the way that God wants me to? How can I work through this? You, as I said earlier in my prayer, you guys have a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm, but maybe not a lot of experience yet. Maybe not a life, not a lot of life's cracks and creases and scars to kind of give you a little bit of guidance that's why you're going with a bunch of adults we're not just sending you to Seattle by yourselves because some of these brothers and sisters have experience they may not have the energy they may not be quite as zealous as you are because they're getting tired but they've got the experience so we team it together to get the both the best of both worlds Energy and experience comes together. So how can I, in my life, this is bigger than Seattle. This is everyday interactions with people, a coworker, a schoolmate, a whatever. This is just people that we run across. How do we have discernment on how to deal with these people? Especially knowing that as a youth, I have a lot of energy and I'm really excited about what I've got. And I want to just share it with you. And I don't want to just share it with you. I want to I want you to take it, and I want you to feel what I feel. But you've got to remember, you've got people out there whose circumstances don't match yours, that are not where you're at. They might have a little chink in their armor, and you can bless them by planting a seed in that chink, but they're not ready to be where you're at. And so there's a time and a place you say something, do something, sow a seed, and back away, and let God deal with that. We don't have to harvest everything all the time. You know, there's limitless possibilities of the people that we might meet today. As I said with my little lame carrot illustration, we don't know what we're going to meet. We may meet highly receptive people. We might meet people there that are going to be really encouraging and appreciate what we're doing. Because they they have the spirit too. Or we might meet direct, in our face, opposition. I think Seattle's probably a lot like San Francisco and Portland and New York and every other major city in the world, there are people who are vocally and violently opposed to what we believe. And we might meet some of them there because they go on vacations too and they live there and we're going to a neat place, a tourist attraction. So we very well might meet these people. So as we think about that, in our small group yesterday, we gamed this out just a little bit with the with group of guys I was with. And you know, we might face ridicule. We might face harassment we might face a whole bunch of things argument reverse influence how about that one guys and ladies reverse influence somebody's friendly and outgoing but what's the they're they're out there influencing you too this is not a one way street where it only goes from you to them what they have what they believe what they're selling also comes to you so reverse influence is a that's why the dead stick's a big deal the dead stick can get you stuck in a pig pen. We might meet people that are very open, people that are encouraging, people that are giving us their approval. We we don't know. So how do we, sitting here right now, how do we kind of work through some exercises so we can try to do the best we can at discerning what is appropriate, what is not, so that we might have influence in someone else's life. As I said, this goes on way beyond Seattle. Every one of us intersect with all kinds of people in all kinds of scenarios. And we want to have an influence with them. But sometimes the trouble we have is is we don't know what got them to where they're at. For example, let me give you a couple. Maybe you got a grumpy old man for a neighbor. Anybody ever met a grumpy old man? How about just a cold, bitter woman? Ever met a cold, bitter woman? How about a profane... Supervisor, a profane coworker, someone you're around regularly that's really just a profane person. Ever met any of them? Job sites, guys? Maybe any of you ever intersect with a brother or a sister in your church congregation? Maybe an older one. And there's something not quite right, maybe? Between you and them? How about somebody that I just meet for just that, just that brief second in time, pass them in a grocery store. We happen to you know, just intersect for a moment. Hi, how are you? Excuse me, that kind of intersection. Just a moment. What about all these? You know, what we may not know is that grumpy old man is grumpy because he had a son that was murdered and he can't get past it. But we don't know that, so we are judging that guy that he's just a grumpy old man and we don't know the backstory, So if we come in really hard and aggressive, we just walled him off. Maybe that bitter old woman is, has an abusive boyfriend. And if we go in there and just try to save her all in one shot without knowing anything, we might just close that door forever. We don't know. The profane supervisor. Well, he was abused as a child. And it's just coming back out. That older brother in the church, your sister, maybe your pastor, maybe he was just overexcited about his message and he talked too long. Called preacheritis, it's a disease. (laughs) Politicians get it too. (laughs) Or anybody that gets much time with a mic. And maybe that someone that I just met for a moment, just standing in line together for a moment, and they asked me a question about my cap. You see, there's all kinds of scenarios, there's all kinds of things that we run into in our lives every day, and we don't really think about it. So how do we have discernment that covers all that? Is there is there some checklist? Is there something we can just go to and go down that list? Okay, I am good for today, no matter whether I hit the grumpy old man or the abuse, you know, the woman in the abusive relationship, or just the curious customer, or someone that's really excited. How do we get prepared for that? How do we learn this lesson? What's Solomon trying to teach us and what can we learn from this lesson? So I'm glad you really want to know that because we're going to talk about it. Discernment, discernment and influence. I want to define these because based on the definition, then we're going to move out from there. So first of all, discernment is a perception in the absence of judgment. What that means is, is we are making educated guesses, if you will, the profane coworker. Is, is really a profane guy. But what we don't know is what's causing it. He might just be a profane guy because he spends all day listening to, to nasty music and he spends all night watching nasty movies and it's just coming back out. But maybe there's a story back here that we don't know about that's vital when we meet up with that man. So discernment, okay, let's go on. It's the perception in the absence of judgment with a view to obtaining spiritual guidance. We need divine help to make this work. We need to be prayed up for this when we leave our houses in the morning. Because we don't know. But the Holy Spirit does. He's already got that planned out. Who you meet next Wednesday at 3.05, He knows. And we can pray that up that He will give us the discernment we need. Because we don't know this right here. In English, it means to assess a situation in which you do not know everything and still be able to respond correctly. Influence. Influence is to have or be the effect on the character development or behavior of someone else. Really, that means to be able to have an effect on someone else. However, as I said earlier, remember, this works both ways. Every time you intersect with someone, You have an influence on them, but they have an influence on you too. Again, the way around this is we need divine help with that. Because sometimes that influence is so subtle and so deceptive we don't even realize it. And then we begin to wonder, where did I get this idea from? How come I'm thinking that way? Let me give you just a little bit of an illustration of that. Maybe, guys, this might, you might be a little more familiar with some of this. You ever, be, you ever been on a job site with someone who uses profanity as just a part of their regular every other sentence vocabulary? Okay, you're around that for a little while. What happens to you? It, it starts to happen in here. Something goes a little haywire. Bam, there's that word. And bam, there's that word. After a while, well, then what happens? It's coming back out your mouth, Right? Okay, we are are open to influence, but we want to do it. We want to be able to influence others. So this works both ways. So knowing that, knowing how to affect someone whom we cannot control or know their circumstances in a correct manner to have a positive effect. That's dual. It's a positive effect for them and for me. See, this is kind of a big deal because this happens every day, all day long. And if we're not careful, if we're not prepared spiritually, this can be positive for them and negative for me. We want this to be positive, positive. Now, sometimes that positive, positive means that we recognize the dead branch and we just kind of back away. Sometimes that positive might mean this branch has a tiny bit of life, but it's way over my head and it's dangerous for me. And so I'm going to get the counsel of my brothers. I'm going to get someone else on my side because this has really a lot of potential to hurt me. So how can we know that? Okay, there's a couple things here that I want to look at. First of all, if we want to start thinking about discernment and having discernment and positive influence, we have to ask and discern our own motives. Why am I wanting to sometimes we don't have a choice, we just bump into them or we have to work with them or whatever. But when I start to want to have a positive influence on someone and work with someone, especially on a day like today, today's kind of a special day. So t- today we're we're pretty excited to, get to go to Seattle and, and maybe share the gospel with someone. But we need to think about and be very careful about our motives for doing that. Let me, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Proverbs 16 says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be an humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the strong. I'm going to give you an extreme example of this. I was, there's, I'm kind of fascinated, I guess. Maybe it's, maybe it's negative influence on me. I don't know. The whole charismatic movement and all this stuff that's going on in our world and that whole, that whole movement of churches... When you get to the extreme end of that, some of these guys get very, very proud of what they've done. One pastor of a a very large church, very prominent name, extremely wealthy man, extremely powerful man, talks about and will publicly state that he is responsible for saving 120 million people. Wow. You know, between his teachings and Internet and books and everything else. And he's proud of that. He also proclaims that God speaks directly to him and he speaks directly for God and him and God have conversations. And in t- at various times, God, he's had to kind of correct God and chasten God. He one time had to give God a hug because God was sad. So we're talking about a little wacky, but my point is, if it becomes, a, if it becomes about, about production, if it becomes about numbers, if it becomes a program, we're headed for trouble because then it's about me. I have brought nine people to the Lord, or 90 people, or 900 people. Who cares? It doesn't matter. If I've brought anybody, I'll meet them when I get to heaven. And God can pat me on the back. Because there's probably, if I've saved nine, probably missed 90 others that I could have had an impact on. Because I was too busy. Matthew 23, 5. This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, You travel all over the whole world to make one convert... And when you're all done, they're twice as bad as you are. You see, for the Pharisees, it's about the number. In Asia, at least where I've been in Asia, it's, there's a lot of churches there. And you can tell them the minute you see them, in many cases, that are the poster child of American churches, of South Korean churches, places that have money. They got their little mission fund, and they send a couple thousand bucks to a place like Nepal. The pastor does very well, lives in a very nice house. It's the nicest church on the block. And the church back to sponsoring it gets to wave the flag. Well, we're just helping these poor folks out. But they don't know the truth. It also works the other way. Galatians 6:10 as you there as we therefore have opportunity let us do good unto all men especially them of the household of faith. We want to help and encourage other people. You see there's both sides of this coin. It's not all negative, but we need to discern between this motive and these motives. Because this is about me and this is about others and brings glory to God. Jude chapter 1, well, Jude only chapter but I have a really hard time typing A scripture address without a number before the the colon. Jude 120, building up yourselves in the most holy faith. That means you're sensitive to the needs of your church congregation and those you worship with and fellowship with and interact with. And you're encouraging them. Not so you get some pat on the back because you care. That's kind of what we've been doing here all this week building each other up, encouraging each other. When someone's fallen in a pit, we're trying to help them get out. What, so we can go home and say, well, I helped this person and that person, and oh man, this guy was in bad shape, but boy, did I ever get him lifted out? No, it's because we care and we love them. We love each other, right? So we have to discern our motives. Secondly, we have to discern our methods. Not every method is going to work for every person every time. I think it was Anthony mentioned about the Ray Comfort method. Well, you know, that might work for some people like Anthony. I I couldn't do that. Um, But Ray Comfort kind of sets that up a little bit because he sets it up and he invites a hot topic conversation and he gets opposition to that. And that gives him an open door to to do what he does. And that works. And that's fine. That's good for him. But not every method is going to work for every single person that we're going to interact with. Some might We'll get to that. Proverbs says, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. You want to talk about an effect on someone. That's a massive effect. That's your enemy and you do him good. And then you think it didn't affect him? The Lord dumped coals on his head. You realize, young folks, there is a judgment coming that is based on that verse right there. Read it. Matthew chapter 25, sheep and goat judgment. I believe it happens at the very end of the tribulation. And the, define, the defining difference between those that are, that, are, that are immediately put to death to await the second resurrection at the lake, at the great white throne judgment, the difference is those that cared for people that didn't like them. Read it. 1 Timothy 5.3, here's another method. This is doing good to your enemy. This is now intersecting with someone that maybe you know or you're somewhat close to. Rebuke not an elder. That's an older person, by the way. But entreat him as a father, the younger as a brother, the older woman as a mother, the younger as sis, sisters. With all purity, honor widows that are truly widows. You see, if I, was, if I had a real axe to grind with someone older than me, I'm not just going to go in with guns blazing, unless there's a deep sin involved or something like that. I mean, there might be a place for that, but if Merle and I had a little squabble going on, I would go and treat him with respect. That's what Matthew 18 is all about, right? Does it say you go in with guns blazing and 19 people on your side, and you're going to lay them out on the floor? No. This is just Matthew 18 with a few names on it. Older, younger, men, women, mom, dad. Widows. That's how this works. Different methods. Jude again. It's the other chapter one in Jude. And on some have compassion. Just some people, the biggest effect you can have is just a smile. It's just an arm around their shoulder. It's just a, hey, I know you're going through something right now. Just know that I am. I'm lifting you up in prayer. I don't need to know any details, it doesn't matter, I just know you're having a hard time. Makes a difference. And others you save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, you know, it's interesting, if you do a little bit of a word study between that and Galatians chapter 6, that, in Galatians 6, maybe we'll get to it here after a while, this pulling out of the fire is violent. Think about it, if someone, A kid running around bumps into something, bam, they're in a fire. Old man, old woman tottering around with their cane and they trip and they're in the fire. You stand back and say, Oh dear. (laughs) No. You go charging into that fire to drag them out, right? And you step on three people's toes and now they're offended, so they got to come see you about Matthew 18. And you bonk into someone else and tip them over, so now they're offended. And they're going to come visit you with Matthew 18. But the point was you saved their life because you jerked them out of the fire, right? And then what do you do? You throw them on the ground because their clothes are on fire, right? And then you start rolling them and tumbling them around. And the, their shirt's still burns, so you rip their shirt off. And then you take your own shirt off and wrap it around because they've got exposed nerve endings. and It's a horrible experience. It's violent. It's active. So you see the contrast here? This is a quiet, nobody knows but you and that person. And this one is active, it's violent, it's quick, it's moving. Two different methods, One, ver- well, two verses. Both in the same chapter in Jude. Next one. Galatians 6. If a man be overtaken in a fault, key point, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one. In the spirit of meekness, meekness, respect, quietness, gentleness, entreating them, encouraging them, considering thyself—another key point. Lest thou also be tempted, bear—another key point. Ye one another's burdens. Bearing means that I get alongside. Now I'm going to work. That, whatever that burden is they're carrying—I'm not talking about a burden of sin because we take them to Jesus directly for that. But sometimes people are just go through hard things and they just need a friend. They just need somebody to walk in their shoes for a mile. That's all. And you got to carry that load. You've all experienced it. You hear something tragic happens to someone and your heart just, Bleh. And maybe it's someone close to you and you just want to go weep with them and hug them. That's what this is about. So there's all kinds of different methods. We need to think about methodology. As we're intersecting with people. Now, how do we just figure that out? Stand back and look across the room and say, okay, I'm going to use plan B on him and plan three on him. And it's not that simple. But as you start to interact, you'll kind of get a feel for where you belong. Some of that comes with age and experience. You did. You tried uh, plan A and plan A didn't work. You got a bloody nose. So you, you learn this just you kind of work through it. But with divine guidance, we have a lot better success rate. Doesn't mean it's always successful. And that is not the fault of divine guidance. That is a fault of the fact that I'm not tuned in good enough. It's never the fault of divine guidance. One other thing discerning, discernment, that should have been discernment, not discerning. My safety. Discernment for our safety. Matthew 6, 10 16, Jesus told his disciples, He says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now that's that's dangerous. Where we're going today is spiritually dangerous. When we leave here Saturday morning and go back to Ellensburg, it is spiritually dangerous. One of you brothers prayed last night that there's a. I don't. I don't know who, which one of you it was. Said we had all these water pots up there. Said Lord, we recognize there's a water pot for sale just down the road. It's spiritually dangerous to live. Some places, sometimes more so than others. So be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's a fancy way of saying have discernment. You're in, you're in the enemy's territory. We've already seen this verse. I've already brought it up, but I bring it back for a reason. Two key points. Ye which are spiritual. That means ye who are non-carnal and regenerated. That's us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have been redeemed by his blood, that is You. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you haven't made mistakes. Doesn't mean you don't need to spend some time confessing and repenting and coming back to Jesus because he's our daily salvation, right? Why does, why does it have to be daily? Because we need it daily. Sometimes we need it hourly. Sometimes we need it moment by moment because we're people. You which are spiritual, that word sensitive Map means simply that we are aware of the needs of other people that are around us. In the context of this verse, this is the people close to us. When someone's hurting, we can sense it. We can feel it. That word animated, I just described that to you with pulling somebody out of the fire. It's active. It's violent. It's quick. Okay. Consider thyself. Recognize that whoever you're intersecting with may have something in their lives, some form of influence over you that you have a weak spot for. You know, I don't know how it works for everyone. I'm just going to use this illustration as I think about this. It would not be, I don't know what we'll find there and how people will be dressed, but at home... especially on if it's a nice day and a warm day, it would not be at all out of the question that there will be people there that really, really need more clothes on. Specifically of the female variety. Guys, that's dangerous territory. And not one of us, including me, including those here that are older than me, have any business trying to intersect with her by ourselves. That's dangerous. If in my daily life, or today, for example, if we encounter that, the way I would deal with that is my wife would go talk to her and I'd go sit off to the side and watch the bay and pray for my wife. Not saying it's completely safe for my wife either, but it's a whole lot safer for her than it is for me. Make sense? Ladies, you got the same thing. Maybe it's not the same thing, but it is the same thing. There's people there that are going to have something, do something, be something, look like something that can hit your trigger points. Maybe it's Mr. Stud out there doing his yoga exercises with just his little briefs on. I don't know. But you have no business going and talking to him. That's my job or one of those guys' jobs. Because ultimately, I can just tell him, you know, get a life. <laughs> you know? I mean, so you see the difference? Am I making sense? There is dangerous territory. Every day when we go out, today's pretty safe because we're a group. And we're watching out for each other. We've got each other's backs. But we live a lot of times by ourselves. And there's things that, that we do and don't do based on that right there. I'll give you an illustration, a personal one of mine. About a month ago, I was driving down a road and there was a lady stopped alongside the road. Nice looking car, nice looking woman. Middle, I mean, nothing nothing bad about this. But you know what I did? I will not stop and get out of my vehicle and help her. It's not because I don't care. What I did is I pulled off and I rolled down my passenger window and I asked her if she needed assistance and I could make a phone call. I'm not going to get out of my truck and nor is she going to get in my truck. I'm in a public spot alongside the road, there's cars going by. but I am not going to put myself in that position. Billy Graham, now I know we're talking, I'm a guy, so ladies, you have to kind of bear with me because I understand how guys work. So I don't have all those illustrations for you. Billy Graham would not be in a room in a, in a room with a woman who was not his wife, ever. In fact, he even went so far that if he was staying in a hotel, he would have one of his assistants get in the elevator first and go in the room first, because he knew that he had a target on his back. And people didn't like him. And people would try to trap him. And people would try to, you know, all it takes is that moment, momentary photograph that is completely out of context that didn't really happen. But the newspaper said it happened. So therefore, it did happen. You see? We have to be careful. We have to be discerning because it only takes a moment whether it's true or not. If the impression is true or believed to be true, you've destroyed a witness. Okay, so now that we've got all that ground covered, exciting, wasn't it? You feel a lot better about today yet? (laughs) You want to just stay home and drink milk and eat cookies? No, no, we can do this and we're going to get, we're getting to the fun part now because we can do this. These dangers are here. The first thing is to recognize they're here and they're real. They are real. They are here. We're going to see them today in some form or fashion, maybe really close, maybe not so close, but they're there. They're there every day of our lives. So what can we do to make this all work? to get a sense through through our spirits when we're dealing with a dead branch that's going to hurt us or when there's a carrot with a little crack. What can we do? We have a great example and I'm really glad that you want to know this. And we're going to look at this example and see what happened with his life. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. This has already been referenced this weekend, but we are going to look at a process for learning about discernment, learning about influence. What do I need to do to be prepared to have spiritual discernment in my life active enough that I can positively influence someone else and their influence on me, if it's negative, is at least walled off and protected out here? So I'm safe. What can I do? Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start and read verses 1 through 4. One of you ladies, please read verses 1 through 4. Read loud. Read quick. I would love to do that and be there. I know you'd, I would have to die. I get that because we're going to read here in a minute that Isaiah had to die too. Woe is me. But can you imagine the power and the grandeur and the noise and the, just the activity and just everything in one spot? Everything. Life. Everything. Light. All of it's right there. In that throne room. And praise God, the throne room can't hold it back either. It goes way out as far as things go. Can you imagine what Isaiah felt like when he saw this? I don't have good enough superlatives, nor does Google have good enough pictures to portray even even a drop of what that must be like. Can you just imagine? the Something that would just drop a man on his face. Apostle John... I believe it was John. Help me out, brothers. He saw an angel and he dropped on his face. It was John in Revelation, wasn't it? Anyway, it doesn't matter. He saw an angel and an angel had enough glory to drop a man on his face. The angel said, no, stand up. I'm an angel. This is God that created the angel. In his, in his own place, on his own throne, at the very center of everything. And Isaiah got there. But bless you this morning, we get to go there too. And that's the point. We must meet with God first. We've got to see Him in His throne room as He is in real time, in real life, in His real being. And you know, that we'll get to this in a minute, but do you know how you know when you really meet God or if it's just an imaginary thing, do you know how to tell the difference? When you meet God, you're going to land on your face because woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips from a people that is unclean. When we meet God, we we drop, we die. But we have the blessing this morning. We have so much more than Isaiah had. But Isaiah, this is the, There's a perfect passage to go through. We got it so much better because we can see God better than he could. Because Christ walked on the earth. If any man has seen me, he has what? Seen the Father. Father. You and I as believers have a right to go to that throne room. Anytime. For any reason. We must first meet God. When we get there, Isaiah 6.1, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. We see him as sovereign. That means he's in control. He is the controller. And I mean that in a positive sense. He's in the negative sense too if you try to buck his will. But we see him as the sovereign there. The next one, the next verse, we see him as the supreme. The second verse, and and above us stood these seraphims, and they, and, and they, they covered him all around. And they cried out and they said, holy, holy, holy. And you know what they did when they got done with that? They said, holy, holy, holy. And then they, holy, and it just goes on and on because that is the majesty of God. That is the level of his supremacy. That these beings, just that's all they can do. This is a fantastic, powerful, overwhelming place and it drops us on our feet, or drops us on our face when we go there. And we've been there now, today's day four. And we come into his presence, and what do we do? We follow on our feet, and then we get up and we sing and we worship him because of this. We see his holiness. I think I jumped my points, but anyway, the beings say holy, holy, holy. That means, ultimately, he determines, he defines, he is right. Number four, we see his power you look in that, the post of the door. The post of the door of the residence of God. If it's a residence, you want to call it that. The temple where his throne is, the thing that God is so big, that he created that's so big, is rattling because God's so much bigger than the thing he built for himself. There's just unlimited power and majesty. His sheer glory is making the house vibrate. He can do And he can change anything, including my lack of discernment. He can flip it the other way around and give me discernment so I have influence. So Isaiah come here, and he saw this God like this. And he saw that majesty and that glory. What happened next with Isaiah? We find Isaiah's insufficiency in the presence of God. The reality of the, of the humanity of Isaiah was revealed under the spectacular glory of the Lord. He says, woe is me. I'm a, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we come into the presence of God, it shines a light on how insufficient we are of ourselves. The only sufficiency we have is through the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And that's how we can stand and go in the throne room. That's how we can even get up out of the throne room is because of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. Isaiah met Jesus Christ. and We're going to see that in just a moment. Isaiah's insufficiency become clear. Step two, when you come into the presence of God, recognize and acknowledge and own and turn away from your own insufficiencies by turning directly to Jesus. Because what happened next? What happened next is Isaiah's purification by the sufficiency of Christ. What happened? Then one of these beings flew down having a live coal in his hand which he'd taken from a tongs off the altar and he came come down and he touched his lips... And he says, Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. The idea, the imagery that's invoked here. Now, this is what Isaiah experienced. What does it look like for you and me? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service for us. we are laying our bodies on that altar. We are dying. We must die. We have to die. Matthew sixteen twenty four says, "What if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross." A cross is an instrument of death, and that's all it is. Paul talks about being crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We go and we have coals off of that altar that cleanses us just like it did for Isaiah. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. When we are willing to put our bodies on that altar, we have to go there. If we don't go there and lay down and say, Lord, I'm a dead man. I'm insufficient. I'm dying to self that you might live in me. That's how we get to this point. If we don't go there, we can't count on spiritual discernment to be active in our life. Because now I'm saying I'm sufficient. I'm good enough. I can figure this out on my own. And sometimes God stands back and say, okay, go ahead. And then we hit a brick wall and we say, God, help me. God, how can you let that happen? said I didn't you chose it you wouldn't listen I didn't want you to hit a brick wall but you know what young folks one thing to remember is in many respects I'm not trying to do a disservice or cheapen God but in some ways God is a gentleman if you want to run the other way most of the time he'll let you not always he turned Jonah around but he let Jonah get started before he met him with a brick with a whale not a brick wall But we have to put ourselves on that altar. God doesn't just pick us up and throw us on there. At least not very often. We have to place ourselves there to get that coal. So that I can have my iniquity taken away. To burn that self-sufficiency out of my life. That's my killer. Is I'm self-sufficient. In one little thing. It's either all or none. There's no partials you're either dependent on the sufficiency of Christ or you are not. Pass or fail. It's not 90, well, what, what was your number, 98-2? That's a fail. It's 100 and zero. To move on from this point, to get where we want to go, we got to give it up. It all goes on the altar. The water pots the sin, the self, the whatever I got, it's laid down on that altar so that it can be burned out of my life. And then we get confirmation. And praise God for confirmation. Because it's painful to get to that point. Because I like myself. I like being, having just a little bit of control. I, I do not like, ask my, any of my family, I do not like being out of control I respond very quickly, very irrationally. I've hurt my wife numerous times because I feel like I'm losing control of something. And the walls go up and the hard words come out and the face walls off because I don't want to be out of control. I'm scared of being out of control. That's my confession to you. I am scared to death of being out of control because I'm hanging on to just a little bit of self-sufficiency. I'm pretty good at a couple things. I'm not very good at a lot of things. And God, that's mine. Doesn't work. And I wonder sometimes why is life so hard? Why does it feel like I'm slogging through the mud Day after day after day after day. And why can't I deal with this problem? And why does that have to happen today? And why this? And why that? And how come this? And how come that? It's because I did not put it on the altar to Jesus Christ. And I don't get to experience confirmation. This is the, this is the believer's lifeblood right there. The confirmation. What does that look like? And In Isaiah 6, 8, he heard the voice of the Lord. He heard God speak. Wouldn't that be an incredible, just an awesome event to just stand here for a minute? Lord, what do I do? Chris, go that way, then go that way, and do this to that guy. I'd go in a hurry. Nobody beat me out the door. Nobody beat me out of the parking lot. If I heard God, whoa, would you? Wouldn't that be an incredible experience? Peter, James, and John heard God speak to Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, and it knocked them flat. They wanted to build a tabernacle there to Moses and Elijah and Christ. This is confirmation that you are the beloved's and the beloved is yours, that you're in the beloved. This is your confirmation when you hear God speak. No, not in your ears, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. And Jesus says, he's one of mine. We heard about intercessor today. Jesus knows my name because I know his name. And I believe in his name and I'm willing to lay it down on the altar because my best sufficiency is just worthless rags. But it's mine. When we hear God speak into our hearts and into our minds, that is confirmation of who we are and what we believe in. I am almost out of time. Sorry, I'm getting excited. This is is good stuff. As we move on from that, after confirmation, Isaiah had a choice to make. He could reject it all. But can you imagine actually seeing that throne room, hearing the voice of God, having that angel come down and touch your mouth with coals of fire to stand there and say, God, well, that's not me. I want want you to send Joe over there. At this moment in time, Isaiah had no idea what God was going to ask him to do. And we have to be right there. If you want discernment, you can't pre-plan and pre-game God. God asked a question. Who shall I send? And Isaiah just, here I am, Lord. Send me. Is that where you're at? When God calls you and says, go do this. Here I am, Lord, send me. I want to tell you something. What Isaiah was asked to do was something he didn't want to do. And a lot of times, many, many times, when God asks you to do something, it's not going to be what you want to do, and it's not going to be what you're good at. Because what happens if we want to do it and we're good at it? It's about me. When God calls, he sends us to the things we're not good at. He sends us to the things that we don't want to do. Because it's about Him. And when we lean on Him, when I say, Lord, I cannot do this. I can't do this. You know what He does? He says, I know, but I can. And I want to use you to do it. Remember the verse we had about being a tool, that being one of our filters, that I am a worthy tool in the hand of Christ, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works this is good works he's getting ready to go do good works Lord send me Christ's sufficiency is my passion for souls did we not just hear that yesterday send me it's not about me it's because I'm in you and you're in me and I find you so sufficient, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, and it becomes my passion. Stick and carrot. Next, Isaiah had to submit to the who and the how. The who and the how. He, volu- he said he would go. Well, he doesn't know anything about where he's going yet, he doesn't know what he's doing. He just said, I'll go. That's scary. Raise your hand. You ever been in a setting where somebody says, I need some volunteer? That's called voluntold. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary. You don't know what you're getting in for. It might hurt. It might be embarrassing. Not here, because you know that we're not trying to do that. You know, we're not trying to hurt anybody or, you know, but in real life, if somebody says, you know what, I need somebody for a job or I need somebody's help. or I need a volunteer. We kind of want to go. Because we have no idea what they're asking. If they come out and say, you know what? I need some guys to help carry some tables out and put them in the trailer. No problem. I understand that. That's just, that's just muscle. But you see, Isaiah wasn't there. He didn't know. So the who and the how. He submitted to the who and the how. What are they? Isaiah 6, 9. Go and tell this people. Go and tell this people. That's the who. And this people was his people. Three minutes. Woo. Um Go and tell this people. That's the who and the how. Then he got the message. And this message was not a good message, but it had a good ending. There's two parts to it. The first part, we're not going to read it. There's the verses. I'm sorry. Okay, you can read it yourself. There's the message. But the message, the prophecy was, go tell this people, destruction is coming, complete destruction. This is, this is, uh, this is before Nebuchadnezzar comes down. This was actually fulfilled with Nebuchadnezzar. I I failed to mention that Isaiah was active during the reign of four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And he probably died at the time of Manasseh. So he got to experience two really good Kings, one short King, one really wicked King that got capped by the ultimate wicked King of Judah called Manasseh. And, History kind of says and whatnot, they believe that Isaiah may have been the one that was sawn asunder that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 under King Manasseh. His message was gloomy, destruction, horror, death. But there is a positive part to this message. Part two was that they're going to get a return. There's going to be a remnant left in the land. We know that happened that's when Jeremiah got left behind and Jeremiah actually died somewhere in all this process but then 70 years later under Nehemiah and Ezra and whatnot, they come back so there's some positive here plus Isaiah was a prophet that gave us all kinds of promises regarding the Messiah woven in all this God trusted him to be the messenger of the greatest hope in the Old Testament the gospel according to Isaiah it's all there Isaiah 53 anybody? we read it at at, at Communions don't we? because it's there The coming of the birth is there. The millennial period is there. It's all there. The gospel according to Isaiah. God, because this man said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Jesus is sufficient. Send me. He got to be the one in the Old Testament that got to prophesy the whole window of humanity from God to God. What a blessing. Then he had to submit to the wind. Isaiah 6, 9. God just says, Go! Go! The win is now, right now, this moment, right now. That's the win. Until, and then it, the last it says, until. Isaiah died before this all got done because it hasn't happened yet, uh, 2,500 years later. You go until, until God tells you to stop or you die. Go until. So, just to summarize, where have we been all this week and, and through this message? If we want discernment and influence, if we want divine guidance as we go through this, especially today, we must know the Father. We must confess our insufficiency. We must be purified by the Son. We must wait on God's confirmation. We must be willing to go. We must go to who He says and how He says. We must give His message in whatever form. Some of these prophets wrote letters. Some of them acted things out. Hosea went and married Gomer and become a living metaphor, which was horrible. So God has a message and a method with all that. And we don't. it's not the same. In Isaiah, he prophesied it. He wrote it. We have it today. We give his message and we must do it in his timing. We try to get ahead of God. It doesn't work. We try to lag behind God and we get ourselves in trouble, just like Jonah did and many other prophets that didn't want to do it. Today. Today. New Testament. Youth Bible School. November of 2022. What do we have? Let me tell you what we have. We have exactly the same thing. Anybody not familiar with that verse? I don't need to read it to you right now, do I? I'm out of time anyway. What that that means is Is we are God's vessel to be used. We are God's water pot. Flaws, cracks, wrinkles, all of it. We are God's water pot, whether He wants to park us on the side, whether He wants to throw us away and say our life is done, whether He wants to shine us up and let us do something really grand and glorious or somewhere in between. We are God's vessel. Go ye. Just, God says go. After you've met Him and He's confirmed you, you go. Secondly, We go with God's message. What's God's message there? God's message is that we teach them to observe what Jesus commanded us to do. What did he command us to do? To die daily to him. To be a living sacrifice to him. To love one another. There's all kinds of things that Jesus has commanded us to do. We go and we teach the message of Jesus Christ. And hope through his blood. That's what our message is. Number three. God's choice of who he wants us to share it with. What does it say here? Who does he want us to go to? All nations. That might be in your house with your sibling or your parent or someone you know. Or at work or in the city or in Nepal or in wherever else your life takes you. That's God's business. The scope, the parameters of where you're going to go is the globe. Some are called to go across the globe. Some are called to work at home. There is no difference between the two. It's God's business of who he sends where. Our job is to say, here am I, Lord, send me. God's choice of how he wants us to do it. He tells us right here, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And baptize you. we too close. Did I miss my, print my verse? Oh, there we go baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. That is what our task is, teaching them and baptizing them, not going down and calling fire on them because they're heathens and unbelievers. That's what John and James wanted to do. Lord, they don't believe, let's just call down fire from heaven. That'd be fun. Don't like them anyway. God's choice of where we go, the world. God's choice of when. God's choice of win. Young folks, you have this moment. You have this moment. And you're already here. There's about 60 of us here at this Bible school, and we are here together, and you have a purpose for being here. It's not all about Seattle, it's about being here too. And you have the chance to intersect with people and share God's message of hope, because we've got hurting people here. We know that. And we've got strong people here. And you can practice it here. This is a safe place to practice it because if you mess up a little bit, it's okay. We're practicing, we're learning, we're training. It's school. Today we go into the real deal. Today we're going into the real deal in a controlled fashion. There's safety. But that's you and I.